Hello and welcome. You're listening to Law and Legend with your hosts Rick Scott and Sebastian O'Dell. Every week we bring you a legendary tale inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. This series of Law and Legend is called Strange Britannia, exploring dark and lesser-known tales of the British overworld and its hidden beings. We've come to the end of our first anthology of stories, and all that remains is to relate the fate of the poet, prophet, and harper they call Thomas the Rhymer. Abducted by the Queen of Elfland, Thomas was bound over to her service for seven years, and was sworn by her never to repeat the sights that he had seen or the stories that he had heard while he was there. But as Thomas regales the gathered throng at the feast in his tower at Urkeldoon, the eyes of the hidden folk are watching. This is the conclusion to lore and legend, Strange Britannia. What place is this? I asked aloud. Oh, please to me do say, Oh, this is Elfinland, she said, and it's here that you must stay. Seven years for a kiss, she said, here you must stay with me, and you must serve me seven years, what well or woe may be. So Thomas came to dwell in Elfland. There he saw sights such as he'd never seen before. Scenery, palaces of arresting beauty, as well as creatures who could rival the strangest and most fearsome folk from the Queen's tales. And he would have spent all his time drifting around in wonderment were it not for the Queen and the service he owed to her. And though all but overcome in what he saw and heard, Thomas heeded her warnings. He ate nothing in that place. He drank nothing, and most importantly, he spoke to no one, keeping the silence that he had promised. Not long after their arrival, the Queen found him once more and said, Your time here is done, Thomas, and in this land you may no longer be. He replied that he'd not yet been here three days. But she shook her head. Thomas, you have been here seven years. He could scarcely believe what he was hearing, but there was nothing he could trust in this place, nothing but the word of the Queen, and he let her lead him away. So she took him from that place, and they rode back over rivers of crimson blood and crystal tears, through the mists that lay over the barrow fields, back from the stranger lands with other skies, along the darkened road where the howling sea was nigh. And it's on she rode and farther on, to Huntley Bank rode she, and there it was she set me down, beneath the island tree. Well, if seven years have passed, I said, and my tongue was always true, pray grant to me some token in memory of you. She said, a token you have already, Thomas, and she plucked the apple from my side, for it will give to you a tongue that can never tell a lie. Thomas gazed at the lustrous fruit, which the lady had plucked from that orchard on the forbidden isle, which had sat in his coat pocket all this time. He had quite forgotten it was there. But as her words sunk in, he felt a lump rise in his throat. 
And I cried, My lady, I pray you, give not this gift to me. For how may I counsel prince or lord, or court a fair lady? Swear such caution with your words, she said, as you silence swore to me. And now hold thy peace, true Thomas, for as I say, so must it be. And feeling he had little choice, Thomas bit into the apple. Somehow it tasted bitter and sweet all at once. And from that moment on, he spoke the truth always. Even when he spoke of the future, his words would find their way to coming true. And you will bring back the music of my lands, she said, for you shall have a harp woven of the silver and gold. And she handed him an instrument, into the frame of which was carved the heads of all of the creatures of the forest. Thomas stared at it closely, but he could not quite remember where he knew it from. And so the queen left him. Thomas blinked. Suddenly he was awake and found he was lying beneath the shade of the elder tree under the fair summer sun on the green verge of Huntley Bank. So I received a tongue that tells all true, and a golden heart that sings. But I was told to never speak these things that I had seen. Thomas now reached the end of his last tale. When it was done, all his listeners were breathless. Other skies and suns, the fortunate isle, gifts from the queen of Elfland herself. They could hardly believe that it was all true, except that it had tumbled from the lips of true Thomas, he who was never heard to speak a lie. For his part, Thomas looked tired, and though he shook the hand of every guest who came up to speak to him, he said nothing more, and seemed glad of the chance to sit down at last. He returned to playing his harp as the feast was drawing its way to a close. Thomas and his straggling guests were finishing their late drinks, sharing warm laughters and lulled to thoughts of sleep by the golden notes strung from the harp. After one tune, a man near Thomas leant across and he said, I was enraptured by your description of your time in the orchard, but only because of a strange coincidence of my own. On my journey here, I was staying in a village by the coast. In the evening, I was sure I saw a snow-white deer, a hind, glowing with the light of the moon, padding across the sand at the shoreline. I took the only path I could see down to the beach, but there was nothing there. I wondered if I had truly seen it at all. Thomas looked up suddenly, startled by these words. How strange, said the lady that sat between them. 
For as I was on the road here, I passed by the Greenwood's edge, and when I looked that way, I thought that I had seen a heart of similar hue shimmering in the darkness, passing between the trunks of the nearby trees. When I looked again, though, there was nothing there, and I thought nothing more of it till you just spoke. And then ripples of conversation spread from there outwards, across the room, and it transpired that every member of the assembled party had seen a white deer on their journey to Ursuldom. Either a heart or a hind, but always a pale and ghostly glow to their hide, like they were emanating moonlight. They were down at the banks of a river, or at the base of a cliff, or appearing for the moment on the rocks at the top of a hill. Thomas said nothing, but his face ran white. He rose slowly and walked unsteadily to the window. As he did, the moon emerged from behind the clouds and cast its glow upon his face, which still looked surprisingly youthful for as many years. Thomas took a deep breath. And then he smiled a rueful smile. The guests had the sense that something was happening, but couldn't say what it was. And then there came a sudden and fierce knocking at the parlour door, and in came a page, his face a mask of confusion and anxiety. My lord, there is a great commotion out in the courtyard. All the townsfolk have gathered outside, amazed beyond all measure, for there's... But Thomas silenced him with a raising of his hand. He took his harp onto his shoulder, and he walked down the hall towards the page. The room was silent, all eyes on Thomas. At the door, he paused and looked about him at the timbered roof and the great hearth place, and he touched one hand to the cool grey stones as if silently bidding them goodbye. And then Thomas of Ursuldome went out into the moonlit yard. Two snow-white deer stood there in the light of the moon, a proud heart with its antlers held aloft beside a similarly radiant hind, both pacing gracefully across the courtyard towards the hall. Thomas walked until he stood face to face with the heart and the hind. And then together, all three turned and began to walk away from the castle and out into the deep mists of the moor, toward the place where the high river cut through the land. We all emerged from the hall, all the lords and ladies from Thomas's great feast, and we stood there among the townsfolk, watching just as they all were, as the three disappeared from sight. Though the spell broke when they disappeared behind the brow of a hill, it was too late. From the tower to the river and across the open country between, no trace of Thomas, the harp or the hind still remained. They had vanished. And no more was ever seen or heard of Thomas the Rhymer in these fair lands. Some say that there shall never be again. Though others are certain that there will come another day that true Thomas is returned to the Aildon tree.
final story, the last yeah. installment. Here at the end of series one. <laughs> Here we Strange are. Britannia. Yeah, what were you what were you thinking about then when you were writing and performing that uh, that last story? The in the most basic telling of the tale, Thomas is is at his feast and uh, the heart and the hind show up. He 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 walks away with them back into Elfinland and uh, there's another there are there are versions in which the heart and the hind are seen beforehand. And I I liked the idea of um there are being certain sort of portents of of Thomas's departure from um, from Middle Earth, um, if you uh, only know how to look for them. It was also quite fun in that way because we'd mixed in symbols of the deer into other stories that we'd done. Yeah, so it gives you this this sort of feeling of a of a story kind of bringing itself to a close which I quite liked I quite like the um, the sense that the king and queen of Elfland they're establishing their their dominion when when the queen takes Thomas away in the first instance she says you know you think you know this land but I say that you do not know it there is you know far more here that you don't see and there's the sense that the the world that Thomas knows is in fact pervaded with the influence of this sort of deeper, richer Britain that he doesn't know. It might seem that by going away from Elfinland he escapes the influence of the king and queen, but of course, if he's still living in Britain, in many ways he still lives in their land. And I like the way that they do it quite subtly. They don't charge out on, you know, hundreds of horses. They don't seize him and truss him up and uh, drag him back off kicking and screaming. They sort of pad in softly. He realises he has to go. Yes. You know, you can struggle and fight all you like, Thomas, but you're coming back with us now. Yeah, well, we talked about this, didn't we? Because um, the first time that you uh, did a version of this, I uh, said so it felt like Thomas wasn't shocked enough mm. by their appearance. And I suppose for me, one of the reasons for that was that um, sort of what the the version of Thomas that we've created was, it's kind of based on these comments um, in an article I mentioned in the first episode about Thomas being a bit of a wastrel. Mm. Um in, in virtually all the versions that I've managed to read, that isn't really an aspect of Thomas's character. But I really liked it as, as an idea because mm. it kind of intensifies the whole sort of like every man, but also a bit down and out as well. Because Thomas sort of becomes this almost like medieval rock star. Yeah. Um, where he, you know, plays for kings and queens um, and he's famous throughout the land and all that kind of thing. And, you know, one of the things that we've been kind of playing with this is this idea that he just he can't help but tell these tales. He's kept them inside. He's used his true tongue uh, to, you know, to tell all these prophecies and things. But finally he's like, no, I've, I've got to tell them what I've seen. Mm. Um, so I mean it sounds in many ways like you had the notion of him like a, like an actual rock star you know kind of elevated to fame and fortune beyond like before prior to maturity and <laughs> just I'm, I'm I'm king of the world I'm telling all these tales 
I'm, I'm great and, and I've got these stories that I'm not allowed to tell, but hell, I'm going to tell them anyway. Yeah, yeah, that sort of sense of hubris, like mm. not just the feeling that he, that he has to do it, but also that maybe by now he kind of thinks he's going to get away with it. And mm. then the heart and the hind appear and he realises, ah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not quite like that so I've sort of gone halfway on that one because I've I've given him that shock factor when he first realizes what's happening but then he does come to to accept it and he he sort of um, becomes sort of content or um, uh, he, he resigns himself to that fate for me I think that I sort of wanted almost to have a resolution of his character arc of, you know, he starts out being this kind of chancer. I, you know, I meet this beautiful lady and I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I charm her and take her in and woo her. And, and instead she, you know, mounts me on her horse and gallops me off to the most terrifying lands I've ever known. <laughs> um, and in the meantime, you know, introduces me to a lot of, uh, slightly uh, otherworldly eerie things and in many ways he has to come to accept that her power trumps his and I think the for me that was slightly encapsulated by the fact that while he is in elfin land the stories say he doesn't speak at all mm. and we do you know we get this notion of him at the very beginning as being uh, you know irrepressible and yet when he gets there he he gives in to good sense, as it were. Um, and so I felt like when he's had the chance to, to grow older and enjoy the benefits of what he's, um, uh, what he's uh, gained from Elfinland, he will sort of have a, a deeper understanding of, of the land and the stories and the, the power of what he's doing. Mm. But um, I think you're right that there is an element where... You want to give a little bit of quaking fear to Thomas as he's about to be led out of that place. It's not just, ah, yes, here it is. At long last, the ship to carry me across to the Grey Havens. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, is this a punishment or is it... Because because those are the two interpretations, aren't there? Mm. That like, oh, it's that he's returning to Elfinland... He's almost, you know, we talked in one of the previous episodes about this idea that people who touch the elfin land almost become part of it. They almost become fae or fairy in themselves. So is Thomas going home or has he violated the Queen's trust? And is is it therefore like a suggestion that maybe he's not going to enjoy what's waiting for him? (laughs) (laughs) I did quite that sort of idea um, that he was sort of going home was sort of playing in the back of my mind in the sense that mm. he's lived with this knowledge of Elfinland for uh, decades or however, in fact I don't know how long he spends out back but he certainly spends long enough to become this rock star character who's well known throughout the, the land. Well he even appears in some versions of uh, folk stories or ballads mm. um, so um, is, it, is it Sir Walter Scott writes lots of sort of kind of like verse versions of Scottish myths and in some of them Thomas the Rhymer shows up as part of the action so I, I very much enjoyed that yes. <laughs> but yeah so I sort of felt like 
in himself been this element of of um, of fey living. You know, he'd been exposed to all of it and he couldn't tell anyone. He's now going to the place where everything is like that, where he doesn't hide that and sort of keep it entirely to himself. I think at the end in the story, I at the end of The Heart and the Hind, when everybody is seeing Thomas leave, I, um, I, rem- I took the conscious decision of having the lords and ladies go out into the square and sort of mill there around where all the townsfolk were as they all kind of watched Thomas leave. And there, there was a slightly conscious decision in terms of wanting uh, the event of Thomas's departure to be a slight sort of social leveller um, for two reasons. One, because Thomas is a sort of national Scottish hero, which kind of gives you a sort of, for, you know, the, the, the fate and, uh, yeah, the fate of our land and, and its heroes is, is something that, that reaches beyond sort of class boundaries and is, is something that is, is an inspiration and, and possibly in this case a tragedy for everyone in the same way. Um, but um, also, to refer back to the theme I tried to play on earlier, that in the face of the powers of uh, Elfland and um, the king and queen, our sort of social relations, our hierarchies become a little bit irrelevant. That just as the uh, the farmer of Pantanus is susceptible to the elf king in, in the same way that Orfeo is, should you happen to get on the wrong side of him, um, you in 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 terms of Britain as the fairies see it, our our distinctions in that way are just immaterial. But it is interesting to wonder because, you know, what, what we've done in some sense is we've woven together a number of tales which are from different places, different times, slightly different traditions. Um, and the, the morals and the kind of worldview of the, the land of fairy that they're trying to give are subtly or perhaps like quite starkly different. And we've kind of put them in one world where the Queen of Fairy rides Thomas through it all. In in the world of the Dark Tower, where the Lord of Elfland reigns over the Hidden Kingdom, whatever was waiting for Thomas would not be nice. <laughs> Whereas, you know, from Orfeo, we can sort of imagine him kind of possibly playing a slightly menial role, but kind of hanging around the slightly leisurely court of 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 the yeah. fairy king i mean i suppose that depends on whether you think of these tales as being from one type because you know like one of the few things it may be a land with more than one king or ruler mm. in it. it may be a land where rulers and kings rise and fall yeah so um i'd kind of approach that in in that sense of like we we weave the tales together and it's glimpses into this other world and you know the exact it's ge- exact geography and history is 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 never precise well, i um, think that quite that fits with the subject matter 
mm. you know um, they these are these are things slightly beyond our ken yeah um, and they they, they their magic and their their stories work in ways we don't quite fully understand and so we're always going to seem slightly uh, move like slightly differently to each other when I think about the 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 power relations and the relationships between characters within Elfinland, I do sort of like to imagine a slightly um, chaotic power structure where ultimately the the will of the king or queen of Elfland will come to prevail, but many different agents have their own quite starkly different agendas. They don't really sort of... They attempt not to cross paths with each other too much. Mm. You know, Well, some versions of the, um, the true Thomas tale, and one, one of the reasons that Thomas shouldn't speak while he's in Elfland uh, is not supposed to draw the king's attention. Yes. Because he's sort of... Yeah, in, in a lot of versions, he is the queen's lover as mm. well. Um, and in fact, I found one one um, ballad recently, uh, or one I think it might have been a more contemporary one. But anyway, there's basically one where it makes it clear that in his seven years or three days in Elfland, he was in the Queen's bed as well as in the land. Um, so no wonder the time got away from him. <laughs> um, and uh, that that idea is also present actually in Shakespeare, isn't it? A Midsummer mm. Night's Dream. Yes. It's, is all about uh, the king and queen of fairyland uh, being at odds with each other. Yes, well, I, I sort of had that in the back of my mind when doing Orfeo. I didn't really have the space to develop the queen's character at all, but I did sort of imagine the king's ploy to lure Herodis into his, into his uh, kingdom was sort of something he probably kept hidden from the queen. Yeah. Um, just as she lures... Um, strange, you know, minstrels from the uh, <laughs> Scottish borders. So he goes and finds, <laughs> and yeah, but but again, yes, that is something that we get in Shakespeare. This um, slightly um, uh, like like a game mm. between the king and queen, where they slightly attempt to one up each other, and they subvert each other's will, but ultimately. They do rule together, despite the fact that their their agendas don't always match up. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what what you're saying about um, presence of this other world, the the king and queen's uh, dominion over it. The thing that really captured me in the set of tales that we've done, and which which I hadn't really lined up before we did it. Yeah was this central theme really of Elfland and the Elf Lords, you yeah. know, putting together Thomas, Child Roland, King Orfeo, uh, Greysteel. I think that's probably the one that maybe a lot of people haven't heard. Hmm. Then the Lady Isabel ballads. So you, you do kind of get this idea of the fairies, but then there's a version of fairies or the fairy world called Elfland. And it wasn't really something that I'd really come across before. Mm. Um, this idea of it as being quite a sort of like a solid concept of Elfland does seem to be something that hasn't been talked about or used a lot recently. Yeah. Um, but I think in the past people were a bit more aware of it 
Yeah. Because there is, uh, I, I spent, I found um, references to, and then went and read a piece of fantasy literature by one Lord Dunsany, which was, uh, which is apparently apparently supposed to be quite a, quite an influential fantasy novel at the time. Yeah. It was kind of rediscovered a little bit uh, around the eighties or something. It was probably one of Tolkien's inspirations, ah. and it's called "The King of Elfland's Daughter." And uh, I have heard of that, and I don't know why, but okay. yeah. Well, what he does is he he writes like a novel length story, which is very much sort of infused with the sort of storytelling uh, kind of style. Yeah. Um, and it's all about uh, Elfland, and it's and it's almost like he does that. He brings all of these kind of like clues and bits of folklore about Elfland and weaves it into a sort of a more coherent kind of like concept, fantasy concept. Yeah. So we have this, uh, the you know the the characters cross you know what he calls the border of twilight or the veil of twilight. Um, he calls calls our world. Um, the fields we know and you go across to to, to these unknown fields oh, and that does have echoes of Tolkien with um Frodo and Sam getting ready to leave the um the fields that they're familiar with at the at the borders of the Shire sure yeah. yeah um and so you've 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 got this more coherent idea of of the elves and the elf lords in in uh in that story kind of brought out of this folklore and then it ends up in sort of the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, as a sort of like a um, a very sort of magical and noble race rather than the the elf as kind of mini fairy thing, which is the other sort of way you might know an elf, like li- little elf in people. It is, um, as, a, as an entire aside here, um, it is interesting to me the way that Tolkien paints the elves because in all British folklore they are uh, slightly sinister if not enti- like if sometimes entirely sinister but sometimes just a little bit um, and 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 removed and secretive and he does sort of paint them as kind of aloof but they're very much kind of almost like of a higher order um, something I was going to say about the um, king and queen um, in their forms as the heart and the hind when they arrive is they sort of um, reinforce that idea of their power pervading the the lands that we know the fields we know the the symbol that they're using here is deer and in medieval britain deer would have been everywhere and it's sort of the the familiar and the commonplace holding part of the power of of, of the strange and unknown because there is there are folklore connections with deer stories that uh, have them as the fairy cattle I was I was reading some some research done by a folklorist called um, Amelia Starling and um, she found stories in the Highlands where fairies actually um, suckle from the deer and in return the fairies keep the deer safe and uh, when hunters go to um, catch the deer, frequently they might get elf shot. Right. <laughs> and that, that, that prevents them from hunting the um, fairy's blessed deer, as it were. Mm. 
you have that sense of the familiar and ordinary animals of of our world are still kind of imbued with the influence of of the fairy lands just to sort of as a sort of kind of background reminder that we're always here <laughs> mm. yeah well i think there's a there's kind of a lot of stuff bound up in that isn't it i think the the hunt and then therefore the you know the deer is a very big cultural symbol the hunt Mm. of something that is to be striven after and and something that was like elusive yeah so you know i'm definitely aware of instances where you know authors used the the deer the the heart as an allegory for christ you know this this thing that you constantly had to, to hunt for and search after hidden and secret powers of of nature as well you know yes. the occult and uh, again you know we talked about all the sort of the secret passages and the boundaries and things and there's almost this way as well you know like you you follow the deer the heart into the wood and you know it takes you somewhere else you know almost without you noticing it and and you know you go on a journey yes um, as, as as at least one of our characters does yes yeah because there's also the um, references and stories where people take the form of a deer or creatures take the form of a deer. Um, so in a, uh, in a concept album I quite like called The Hazards of Love by the Decemberists, um, the, um, the fairy character is at first encountered as a deer that the female pr- protagonist finds and tends and cares for and then eventually he takes his true form. Um... Although actually, it's not entirely clear in that whether he is actually a human who has just simply been taken in by the Queen of Fairy. Sense of the you know the the transformations being related to the the trans transformatory kind of like aspects of you know spirituality, myth, legend, and stories themselves, um, and and something something very like elemental about like desire seems to play a huge role in a lot of these tales of talking about these glancing meetings between our world and and the uh the fairyland or the elf land it's almost uh it does seem to be desire that draws people across that border you know yes. whether it's the the uh the deviant um murderous desires of um of the outlandish knight who wants to to uh drown maidens in the in, in the ocean or he's you know, willing to go a long way to do it <laughs> yeah um and the the elf uh you know the elf king and the elf queen sort of taking human lovers and yes. and, and actually that meeting between like humankind and a mystical race is uh you know comes up in in quite in in the deeper mythology of these tales as well like the sort of the uh the biblical tale that we mentioned about uh fallen angels mm-hmm. um procreating with with human beings um and uh that that comes up in a few other legends as well as being sort of the origins for for sort of these creatures uh some of these creatures yeah. In this series, we've woven together like a selection of different tales. In the original tellings, what we are told that Thomas does sing about 
um, at that feast is what he actually sings about is the um, is the legends of King Arthur mm. and Tristram and Isolde and all those kind of things. So we've taken things in a slightly different direction out of a desire to explore slightly less well-known aspects of uh, British folklore. But there is, again, this thing about, you know, the the identity of this other world because Elfland and its rulers doesn't immediately speak to you perhaps of the names that we instantly associate with King Arthur and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Avalon, mm. Morgan Le Fay. But actually, if you start digging into it, you know, there are possible crossroads and parallels which is something that we also tried to sort of inject into this tale so yeah. we, you know we have thomas uh reaching this island guarded by gray steel because in his story he's in something called the forbidden country which sounds a lot like uh you know the sort of the, the mystical fairyland as well yeah um and uh, and then sort of crossing that with well if that they go to an orchard and Avalon is supposed to be a blessed isle of trees uh, and, and Avalon one of the etymolo- etymological suggestions I've seen that is that it is the land of the apples yes yes so kind of like weaving all of those things together and you mm. know um, Morgan Le Fay and oft, often in a lot of like tellings and versions ends up almost sort of being like a power into herself uh, and is in, in a lot of contemporary versions is is sort of betrayed as like being a druidic princess or yeah. or, uh, or priestess rather so uh, but if you start talking about Elfland then there's kind of the idea of powers much bigger than than possibly Morgan Le Fay or or, yeah. or or thinking of Morgan Le Fay as another elfin queen, you know. Yes. Um. <laughs> it was interesting. Uh, there was something I was thinking about with regards to that because um, one of the things you do on this podcast is you talk to Tim Ralphs. He was one of the people who ran and founded the Story Forge. And uh, when he was last at the Story Forge, he did uh, an Arthurian story about Morgoes, um, the sister of Morgan Le Fay, mm-hmm. with death of Arthur and him being led on to Avalon it, it made me think at the time the um, the Christian and the pagan Arthur is supposed to be this great British hero well into the time in which Britain became a Christian land but he's led off to Avalon which is you know it is the fortunate isle it is the sort of home of quite sort of elfin powers um so you have a sense of reinforced pagan identity at that conclusion. And I think it's something I was thinking about a little bit at the end of um, Thomas's tale here. We've spoken a bit about um, the way that uh, Christian tales have a very kind of good against evil sort of structure to their stories. In this one, we have almost a balance restored. There's a rule that you mustn't break and you broke it and the powers of the land will come back to punish you for it. Um, and the the final act is not, you know, that um, is not that triumph of the heroic character making his stand. It's of the powers of the land being recognised again. 
And so the fact that we had done a lot of allusions to Arthur did um, kind of <laughs> make me sort of inwardly smile. The, the powers of nature being the ones that really, truly hold court. Yeah, I suppose mythologically, like, it's almost like the the insistent power of nature. You know, you yeah. have this Christian legend, but, you know, quotation marks, paganism, or yeah. natural powers of the world keep asserting themselves as almost like, the, you know, suggestion as, oh, well, well, you think you're going to heaven, but at the end of the day, actually, <laughs> maybe it's necessity, maybe it's nature, maybe that's where the true power lies. Yeah. So in the end, you find yourself on a ferny way to Elfland. <laughs> I guess we could talk about whether we've enjoyed it. I mean, yeah. I've yeah, enjoyed it a great deal. <laughs> I, f- I feel like I've probably learned more than anybody else out there. <laughs> um, it gave me, it gave me a, a renewed opportunity to go to the library to get books on folklore out, um, of which many of them weren't very useful. Um <laughs> Some of them do just want to tell you about all of the fairies that are out there and what you must do in your own garden in order to see them, and etc. Um, but th- there are some really, you know, interesting resources out there, and I mean, definitely supplemented by a healthy dose of Wikipedia. <laughs> um, when I needed specific information, I didn't want to have to go to other regional libraries to find it out. Um, but but that was nice. Um, and it gives an area of focus for um, creativity because you've got a raw material to work with. Mm. Um, That's another thing I was going to mention about storytelling is because storytelling itself is an art. Mm. One of the really helpful things about having non-copyrighted material is that you can be creative, but you've also you can focus on oh, how am I going to deliver this rather than having to invent a new world from the, the bottom yeah. up. I mean, I, w- I wanted to get a lot of... Um, I'd, I'd, I've researched so many stories and things during my time as a student connected to the, the research that I was doing. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, again, talking about geography, <clears throat> I just haven't had the time or the you know the ability to constantly be rehearsing stories and then trying to go around lots of folk clubs to tell mm. them so um you know i, I really enjoyed uh, you know being able to 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 do that creative work on the story and the performance uh, and having having somewhere to put all of that energy and enthusiasm uh, yeah so uh yeah it's been really good for me one of the things that I've loved about creating this series, you know, creating the podcast, creating the illustrations, is something that I've always, like, growing up and watching TV series and films and all that kind of thing, I've always, you know, I've, I've wanted to be a writer or an artist or whatever. Mm. Um, and obviously you grow up and you try to do those kind of things, but you, you realise very quickly that unless you're incredibly lucky, unless you become J.K. Rowling yeah. or become one of those writers who gets into the writer's rooms on on one of those shows Mm. you know you don't have access to the you don't have the ability to make your own tv series no uh or even to get you know like there's again it's a very particular mindset where oh you know to be successful as a storyteller i will have to uh, create a manuscript and send it to an editor who will have to want it to then publish mm-hmm. it 
and all these kind of things. And I suppose that's one of the great things about podcasting as, you know, sort of a new medium is that it's all, yeah. it's a form of self-publishing. Yeah. And a, and a DIY can't... punk aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> We've got going for us. Um, but it's almost like that's a technological thing coming together with, you know, storytelling. Yeah. You know, storytelling, you just, you went and told tales to your family and the pub and all these kind of places. Yeah. And so now we've created our series, our little canon. We've got this kind of like creative ownership of something. Mm. Um, and all you needed to do is to be able to do a bit of writing and to use your own voice. Yeah. Some purists just, don't even yeah. want to do the writing <laughs> part, you know, they just, they'll just... Just literally stand there and use their voice and there. Yeah, it's not real storytelling if you wrote it down. <laughs> but it did occur to me that I do know, in fact, the exact moment when I realised I wanted to do storytelling, um, which was I was on a camping trip with some friends and, you know, I had done... In fact, no, at that point, I don't think we'd done even any short story writing. I'd done writing um, of books that never went anywhere. Um, but um, uh, we had a campfire and somebody I know just went, oh, can someone tell a story? And we I, we heard maybe two or three stories of that that evening. And I realised I just really like the medium because it's it can be done just in a circle of friends with no uh, specific preparation. I mean, okay, practicing does help, but um, you don't need to bring an instrument or any sound equipment. Um, And anyone can do it and put their own spin on it. Um, And it's quite sort of patient in the way it draws you in and and builds up a narrative and then delivers... The, the the big events and the conclusions and things like that um, as a communal thing as a thing I can do in a room with other people where I can actually you know use my voice and uh, can like convey what what the the, the emotions and the, the atmosphere it's nice to feel that you've got that sort of thing to offer between people and not sort of having to think about where you are in terms of like a global stage and a like huge audience. Um, just how nice is this for people to sit and listen to? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a great advertisement for people listening to the podcast to get out and go to a storytelling club or to see a, a live storyteller because, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the podcast is great but as also there's a whole other aspect isn't there sometimes to, to telling with friends or telling telling with an audience especially if you've got a, re- a, a really sort of uh, experienced storyteller who's very good at doing that kind of thing yeah um, yeah uh, look it up lots of people aren't aware that there are storytelling clubs in a lot of places right. you may be surprised if you haven't seen it or if you don't know um, and certainly if in the UK is, uh, you can look up the website for the Society of Storytelling and I think they've got a directory in fact of uh, storytelling clubs um, very nice and if you're outside of the UK then you know there are other places as well which we don't have to know about You've been listening to Lore and Legend, episode 10, The Heart and the Hind.
Our story today was interpreted and performed by Sebastian O'Dell. Music in this episode was composed and performed by Robert Bentall and Ellie Burton. Additional music was sourced from Derek and Brendan Feister on Bandcamp, and music and sound effects from the community at freesound.org. This concludes our first series of tales. It's been great fun for us, and we really hope that you've enjoyed the journey so far. We'll return in 2020 with a new anthology of Greek-inspired myths in Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream. But have no fear, there's plenty to keep you going between now and then. We'll have our second episode of Lore Talk, where we pick up loose threads from our tales and respond to any burning questions lingering in the mind of our listeners. Then in two weeks' time, we have the first of our guest storyteller episodes, with Tim Ralphs telling the tale of the soul of Jonah Jones. Watch out for our Halloween special episodes, Jack of the Lantern and The Warlock, on the 30th and 31st of October. Followed in November by more guest tales from Sarah Pearl and Simon Haywood, and in December from Carmel Page, as well as our Christmas special episodes. Join us after the new year for stories from Graham Langley and many more. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, find us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. Now, if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, please consider supporting the podcast through our creators page on Patreon. A huge thank you to our first Patreon supporter, Paul Jackson, from us here at the Law and Legend team, and on behalf of all of our listeners. Listener support ensures that we can continue to make the best quality content for the podcast and get it out to more people. It contributes directly to maintaining the Law and Legend website domain, subsidising the best quality recording equipment, and giving us funds to spend on getting the right music and sound for each of our episodes. Listeners who support us on Patreon will have early access to episodes and also have access to our bonus episodes, which we're producing throughout the year. Another way to support us is by listening to us on the Radio Public app and by sharing our episodes with your friends and followers on social media. You can find all the relevant links on our website at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. To all you wonderful story folk, Thank you for listening.